Today's interview contains frank discussion of infant loss and may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Rachel Packabush from Wiley, Texas, and I'm a school counselor and a pastor's wife. Each episode reminds me of how marvelous and sovereign our God is. As a pastor's wife, I talk with many people, and I frequently rely on the testimonies I've heard from Compelled to encourage other believers. Enjoy today's episode. Just by the ultrasound that he had seen before, I think he had a pretty good guess as to what he thought it was. He was really sweet and compassionate. He got down to our level, was holding my hand, and you know, said, I'm sorry, but your son is not going to make it. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. Last week, we heard an exclusive behind-the-scenes recording with Gracia Burnham. Gracia and her husband were missionaries in the Philippines when they were kidnapped at gunpoint by terrorists and held hostage in the jungle for ransom. They endured every hardship you could possibly imagine, including gun battles, beheadings, and starvation. Yet Gracia was confronted with one continual question. Was Jesus asking her to forgive these men? Again, you can hear that story by tuning into last week's episode with Gracia Burnham. Today, our guests are Andy and Jamie Stewart, a young Christian couple expecting their first child when they received the crushing news that their baby was not going to survive their pregnancy, let alone a delivery. Could they trust a God who would let this happen? Gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. This past summer, I sat down with Andy and Jamie at their home near Denver, Colorado. They have similar backgrounds. They both grew up in Christian homes, made professions of faith, went to church consistently, and met each other during their first year of college. Five years later, they got married and were living a pretty normal, comfortable life in the Denver suburbs. Andy was a civil engineer, Jamie was a hairdresser, and they were plugged in with a great church. Life was good. Three years later, they became pregnant with their first child and were super excited to start their family. Jamie was just certain that their baby would be a girl, and so she preemptively chose the name Logan for their child, which is where we pick up the story as the two of them headed in for their 20-week sonogram. We were so excited for that ultrasound because it's the anatomy scan. So that's where you find out if you're having a boy or a girl. We had a big party planned for the afternoon where our, our family and our closest friends were going to come over so we could reveal the gender to everyone. And I was I was so excited. I told Andy it was almost more exciting than our wedding day, which I mean in like the nicest way. But I was so excited <laughs> to find out, are we having a little boy or a little girl? That morning, I remember having a lot of anxiety. And of course, it was because, you know, you know, at that appointment, that's where they go through and they do a full anatomy scan. And if there's something wrong, you'll find out at that point. And so I think I was really nervous about that. Just sitting in the sitting in the room, you know, excited. But I noticed something was wrong pretty quick just based off the reaction of the ultrasound tech. Yeah, I mean, it went downhill right from the beginning. She gave us, she was really young. And so she's like, I have a really serious face when I scan. So don't let that freak you out. This is just like how, how I work. And we're like, okay. And then, but the second the probe touched my belly, it was like the entire demeanor in the room just like shifted. And you could see that there was just panic on her face. And, but for me, I'm like, okay, well, I'm a worrier. 
she warned us she said that she looks like this like this is fine Jamie you know you need to calm down and I kept trying to tell myself that but it was very clear very early on that there was something wrong because we were we were kind of trying to joke with her and, and and just at least converse with her and she was very very closed and like Andy said she got up she really didn't say much of anything she got up and took off her gloves and left and so we're sitting in that room kind of just looking at each other and Andy was, you could tell, you know, trying to be the man to hold it together and trying to like, it's okay, I'm sure everything's fine. And I was just like trying not to crumble at that point because your mind is racing from everything. You know, like, do I have a baby that has a, a terminal condition? Do I have, like, what is wrong and what's happening? Um, and then she came back in with an ultrasound tech that you could tell had been doing it for a long time. And so she still didn't really give us anything though. Um, they were very, everything they said was to each other and masked in medical terminology. And they really didn't say much to us. They took a bunch of pictures and then they took us to a back room. They're like, I'm sorry, we can't figure out the gender. Yeah. It was supposed to be an hour long ultrasound. And I think we were in there for like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then they just took us back to, um, they took us down the back hallway. Well, and typically, cause we were with midwives, you go back out to the waiting room, they call you back in for your appointment. They didn't do any of that. They kind of, truly took us to the corner room in the back of the office. And then we sat there probably for another maybe 20 minutes. It's hard to say how long it was. It could have, I mean, it felt like it was like four hours. It could have been five minutes for all I know, but it felt like we were back there for a really, really long time. And at that point we were, you know, just, I was, I don't think you were crying. I was losing it just cause my brain was racing from, you know, what's happening? Is our, our baby okay? And then the doctor walked in, which I couldn't tell you what that doctor looked like and said, there's, I, I remember I, I'm trying face. to think what she said. I think her. she said, there's something wrong with your baby. And the second she walked through the door, first it was a doctor and it was supposed to be a midwife. So it's like, okay. And she's holding a bunch of pictures and she just basically like said, we found some abnormalities with your baby. She's like, we're seeing all these things on the ultrasound. They, they may be just missing limbs. And, and so I'm like, I mean, you just go down a path of like, I don't know what you're telling me. She's like, it may be completely okay. Or, and I was like, it felt like we were getting broadsided, but at the same time given no information. And so um, they they left it at here. They gave us a card and said, here's a number to a specialist, call them. And that was how we walked out the doors. And so it's- That was it. That was it, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we walked, it's crazy in the span of half an hour, an hour, how your life can just change in just a second, you know? Cause we walked in those doors hand in hand and excited and about ready to have a gender reveal party. And I was, my brain was thinking, what cake color am I making when I get home? And then we walked out the doors just completely devastated. Words can't really describe how they felt, but the closest thing to it would be shock. All of their other senses seemed to fade away and all they could really think about was their baby Logan. Was Logan going to be okay? I do remember going into the car and the first thing I did was call the specialist. Um, and they luckily were able to get us in the next morning. So I don't remember the car ride home at all. I feel like the whole thing is really, really blurry. And I'm not sure if that's just my mind's way to protect itself from a super tra like traumatic experience, but I don't remember getting home. I remember it was, there's just like a heaviness on the house because we didn't have any answers. We didn't know. We didn't know if we had a baby that was going to have just a severe, you know, a, a condition that was going to make life more difficult, um, or if we were going to have a baby that was going to live at all. Yeah. And so it was just kind of this very somber, heavy, not the afternoon that we had planned. I remember sitting on the couch, actually, holding my belly, and I could see through to the kitchen, and there's like all of like the stuff I was going to use to make cake. 
And so it's like, I was supposed to be like making a pink or a blue cake. And I was supposed to be, you know, prepping for a party and getting ready to tell our families, you know, because everyone was so excited for the baby. And the afternoon turned out to be very, very different. I mean, that night is just brutal, you know, sitting there and waiting and on your knees and just begging God, like, please, please let this be a mistake. Let this not be a big thing. I remember thinking, I'm okay if my baby doesn't have arms, like we can handle that. I just want my child regardless. And just hoping that at the end, it was something that was compatible with life. Um, my, I remember I, my dad grew up, had a pretty hard upbringing. And I do remember him coming through the door and he just lost it. And I remember sitting outside with him and I was trying to console him and tell him like it would be okay. And um, I remember saying that to him and telling him that it was gonna be okay, but feeling in my heart that I was like just bold faced lying to him, which was really hard. Well, I'm sure we didn't sleep good in any sort of sense, no. but the, I think that was the blessing is we did get into the specialist the next morning. Um, it was super nice in the fact that it wasn't like a typical ultrasound room. It was like in this older part of Denver and just not that it was comforting, but it just wasn't like as sterile. It as, didn't feel quite so clinical. Uh, yeah, it didn't feel yeah. so clinical. So, you know, that was a little bit, you know, maybe everything's going to be okay. You know, we went in and the ultrasound tech started to do the same thing that had just happened. I remember thinking I'm laying here and here's another, I have another probe on my belly and I'm trying to stare at her face to see what, what her reactions are. Cause I was more concerned with what she was doing than the ultrasound screen. Cause I couldn't understand what was happening. And we had been praying, I think, I mean, truly, we've been praying all night, begging for a miracle. Um, and I remember when we got in there, she said, I'm glad that, because our parents came with us. She said, I'm glad that your parents are here. This is going to be a really hard day. And I remember thinking like, well, wait, like you haven't even looked yet. So clearly they knew more than what we knew. I'm assuming their conversation with our doctor had more information than what we were given. But so she had anticipated it being um, something really hard. And I think we were still kind of hopeful that maybe it was misread or it wasn't quite as bad as they thought. Um, so she went through and she did a bunch of measurements. Um, within a few minutes, I remember she said something about, do you want to know the gender? Which was, I mean, I was still thinking about it and I think you were too. Um, but I don't think it was on the forefront of our mind. And at the time I had been convinced that it was a girl, <laughs> which it was not. And so she said it was a little boy. And so I remember for a split second, like we both were kind of like laughing and crying because it was this realization that we have a son. And then all of a sudden it was just taken away because it was like, instead of my baby might be dying, it's my son hmm. who's dying, which was a big shift, so. Yeah, and then little old man doctor came in who grabbed the probe and, and started just took in looking. I think I just remember him, he, been, he spent like two minutes or probably even less than a minute looking at Jamie. I could see him almost like he had like a check list in his head and he would he'd kind of like go through look at something and then move on to the next one you could almost see him checking off all these these markers that he was looking for because I think just by the ultrasound that he had seen before I think he had a pretty good guess as to what he thought it was and then just was confirming that when he was there so it was it was very quick but he handled it much better he was really sweet and compassionate he got down on our level was holding my hand and you know said I'm sorry but your son is not going to make it as you can imagine Andy and Jamie were devastated Logan, their baby boy, was going to die. He had a very rare medical condition called osteogenesis imperfecta type 2, which unfortunately is always lethal. Osteogenesis imperfecta type 2 is, there's many different types. OI is basically a medical term, but it's brittle bone disease. There's a bunch of different types of it, ranging from livable to fatal, but it is the most lethal version. So out of all the different types that are out there, Logan unfortunately had the one that was the least compatible with life. 
Um, and, you know, from what the medical world said, it was not compatible with life in any capacity. So in utero, he had a bunch of broken bones that they could see on the ultrasound. They were already broken, mm-hmm. even, which is, as, even as a 20 week old baby. As a, yeah. So which very likely was the reason that first ultrasound tech when she got in there and could see that he already had more broken bones than a grown up has, you know, for their entire life. Um, I'm sure that was kind of a shock for her because it's not super common. They're kind of sounds awful, but kind of frog legs. So like whatever the lower part of the leg, you know, I think was like folded. So like they typically are measuring those bones for mm-hmm. all their typical anatomy scans. And I think that's probably why she started panicking because she's like, yeah. And then so his, his head wasn't calcified. So she could see a lot more of the brain than I think is typical. Um, kind of long story short, basically because his body can't grow the way it needed to and his abdomen couldn't grow, that there would not be enough room for his organs to develop and to mature which ultimately would um, would be the reason that he was not able to live outside of my womb. But now that they knew about Logan's medical condition, there was a whole host of questions they would have to answer and decisions they would have to make, and all of it under the worst imaginable circumstances. So it was, I mean, on top of any, any diagnosis where you're told that your baby's gonna die is traumatizing, knowing what he had in it was so horrific. And is he in pain? Is he suffering? And all these different things um, definitely made it that much more traumatizing just because when your kids hurt, you want to help. And you couldn't. We couldn't We couldn't take it away. And it was really hard knowing that he was broken. But yeah, it kind of just felt like a bomb had been dropped at that moment. Because like all the hope that you'd been holding on to was just gone in an instant. And, um, and then they start asking you all these questions that like we were still reeling from what was happening. And what, you know, like that our son was not going to make it. And then they're trying to ask, like, well, here's the next steps. And that was a really hard transition just because we were, I was still trying to absorb what he had said. Not, you know, what's now, not what is next was just a little, it felt like a little too much right off the bat. (sighs) Initially, I remember just like the recoil of the, the information and that blast and trying to figure out what they just said. And then to be followed by, well, how do you want to move forward? I think we were just kind of initially like not really even understanding what they're saying. And so like Andy said, it was basically you could terminate, you could induce labor. And I, I believe that they said something about that we could continue to carry, but that I don't remember that actually happening. Um, and I think for a, for a minute, I thought that we had to. I kind of thought that it was like, okay, well now we have to decide whether or not we terminate or if we go you know, induce labor. And then it was a little bit later that it was this realization of we don't need to do anything. Like God is the author of this life and he created this life and it's up to him when to call this child home and not up to us. And once we kind of, you know, it calmed down a little bit and we were able to talk more clearly about it, it was like, no, we need to just love this child and fight for this child just like we would if you're here in our arms and try to spend as much time with him as we possibly could, even though it was kind of, you know, in not traditional ways, but try to make memories with him and and fight for him. And so that that's what we did. Whenever we were with people, I was like the elephant in the room, but like the pregnant elephant in the room, you know? And it was, I was always the girl who was carrying the dying baby. And that was, it was really hard. And just, you know, some people were really supportive. And I think Andy and I at the time, like we were like in battle mode and we're gonna fight and pray. And, and you know, we believe our God can do a miracle and we're gonna fight for that. And I think we needed people who were willing to hold on to hope with us. And there were some that, um, you know, were would not automatically 
just say, yeah, Logan's going to die. You need to move on and, and figure out what's going to happen afterwards. But people that would, you know, refer to him still in present tense and refer to him as still possibly being in our future and just helping us hold on to the sliver of hope that we had with like a death grip. Um, but then there was, it's just so shocking sometimes the people that you expect to behave a certain way or the people like, oh, this person's going to be a huge prayer warrior for me. I remember we were, one of them came over to our house and in my mind, she's coming over and we're going to pray and we're going to fight. And she basically was telling me what I should wear to his funeral. And I was just taken back because I was like, whoa, he's not dead. Like, I need you to fight with us. You're supposed to be battling with me and not, not telling me to wear a big black hat to a funeral, which was shocking. So I think there was definitely just some like really interesting interactions that just made an already really difficult situation that more awful. Jamie and Andy were praying for a miracle, crying out to God, asking him to intervene and heal their little boy, Logan. But would he? More on that after the break. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry, and includes skits, real-life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's Word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course, women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Andy and Jamie Stewart were 20 weeks pregnant with their first child, a son named Logan. They had recently discovered that Logan had a rare medical condition that was fatal and he wasn't expected to be born alive. They were praying desperately, asking God to heal their son, 
all the while facing significant pressure against them, even while they tried to fight for Logan's precious life. I feel like we were at appointments nonstop after his diagnosis. The group that ultrasound, that did the ultrasound initially, once we told them what we wanted to do, they were wonderful. They were super supportive. Um, they didn't really question us. And I felt like we just felt really safe with them. Um, but then most of the times that we met new doctors, uh, it felt like we were going into like a, like a boxing ring because there was the questions and the doubt and why are you doing this? And you're making this longer and harder and more difficult um, than it needs to be. Kind of like Logan was a lost cause, like let's just be done with it, start over and try again, which was not our mentality at all because that was our, our baby boy. I did not like to go to the doctor. And when I went to the doctor, I was so upset because I was going to have to talk about why I want to do what I'm doing and not sound like a crazy person. And they always kind of looked at you like you were, you know, why are you not just having an abortion and starting over? This child's not going to live and it's not worth the pain that this is going to give you, you know, carrying this baby as long as you can. And then, you know, seeing how delivery went. Um, we went to a doctor's appointment. Um, I think it was a week after Logan was diagnosed and I think this doctor was, um, she was trying pretty hard to tell us that we were making the wrong decision. Um, I'm assuming that she was the doctor that did the abortions. There's no easy way to say that. Um, and so I think she was, she was wanting to know like, well, why are you guys wanting to do this? And then Andy at one point said like, how do you expect me to pick a day on the calendar for my son to die? And you could tell for a second, it kind of made her like stop and think and, um, so I think it's just we and the doctors, honestly, they were so loving and compassionate for the most part, but it felt very much like in a very pro-choice world that our choice was being questioned. And that was really hard. Unfortunately, it didn't help us with the choice we were to carry Logan um, and let God decide um, yeah. when it was his time. And I think that was the harder part is like those first couple of days after the diagnosis, we had all of a sudden said, we're carrying this baby um, cause he's our son and we're going to fight for him and pray for him and pray for a miracle uh, and put it in God's hand. And then, you know, the hard part with OI type two is like when I did my Google searching is like every pregnancy ended in termination because I mean, that's what most people would do. And so I think the doctors were just as much unknown. They're like, we don't know what to expect. Like your baby could come out in pieces. And so like, we have like these horrific images and mm -hmm. fear that's kind of being spoken into us. And that's like, all gets kind of implanted um, in your brain. So, I mean, it's, you know, I just remember so many different fears that then started to come up of like, well, I have no idea what's going to happen and on down the line. And that leads into his, his birth story and everything yeah. else. I mean, you have to live in this tension of knowing and believing that God could do a miracle, that he's sovereign over everything. And I never felt like he gave Logan the sickness. I wasn't, you know, I don't think he gave Logan to me and then gave him this horrific disease so that we could lose him. Um, I think we live in a sin-filled and fallen world full of sin-filled and fallen people. And because of that, we now live in a world that reflects sin. And so I knew that I didn't, I didn't blame God for it. But I think the hard thing for me was you didn't cause it, but you could fix it. And why are you not fixing it? And so I think there's just this tension, especially when you're a believer and you go through stuff like this or any tragedy in life, you live in the tension of God is sovereign in this, but he's not necessarily going to fix it. I might not get the miracle. And even though I don't, he's still good and he still loves me and he still has a plan. And so I think that was um, definitely, there was a lot of back and forth between trying to not be mad at him and to trust him. And so it was really, really hard to fight for a miracle 
for Logan, but then also know very well that there was a really good chance that he wasn't actually going to make it. It was a real juggling act, facing incredible sorrow, but also trying to find joy even in small moments. Sometimes it was easy, but other times it was hard, very hard. And even the most insignificant things that you wouldn't even think about normally could throw a curveball out of nowhere. It felt like a million years, but then also felt way too short right. at the same time, right? Because yeah. you're trying to embrace it and enjoy the time that we had with him, knowing that it was fleeting. But then also it was it was torture, honestly. I mean, being a pregnant woman out in public, and I look like all the other pregnant women, and people want to talk to you about your baby, and they want to touch your belly and ask you what you're having. And I just, you know, sometimes I would just lie. They're like, oh, are you so excited? And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like we're having a little boy just because I could not engage. My heart was not in a place where I could say, oh, no, like he's actually going to die. But then there were other times where people would say something and I would just say, no, he's going to die. And um, then having to field the many responses that you got from people, because uh, obviously that's a huge shock. But it was very, very hard to look just like all the other pregnant women, walk past the baby sections and stores knowing I should be shopping there. I should be, you know, decorating his room. I should be doing all these things. And instead, we're at Target picking out a blanket to bury him in and fighting for his life and then having people tell you, no, he's going to die, but then feeling him move inside of me. Um, so it was, that was a really, really hard space to live in. And it felt, it did, it felt like an eternity. But yeah, I mean, we went to Rockies games, we went on drives, you know, through Golden and just tried to take him places, you know, and, and have experienced anything that gave us time to, yeah, you know, we went, we went just to a couple, be together and with him. A couple weddings, we went, you yeah. took us on a little tour of where you went to school. Um, mm -hmm. We would read him books, we'd sing him songs. There was a, a song that would come on pretty often and we would dance in the kitchen if we were home to it. So when that song would come on, Andy would hold my hand. And even if it was in the car, I remember you'd hold my hand because we both knew it was like, oh, it's a Logan song. And you'd look at me and you'd say, we're going to make it. And if it was at home, we would dance, which was really sweet. Um, but yeah, just spending time with him, reading to him. Andy used to read him the Bible and just trying to somehow cram a lifetime supply of love into his life, which felt impossible. Um, but that's kind of just what we're like, this is all we have and we're going to make the most of it. And it sounds beautiful and poetic on the surface, but we would go from dancing to me screaming and crying on the floor in a ball. Um, you know, so there was some moments that were really beautiful um, and moments where like through God's grace alone that we felt peace. Um, but then it was, it was rivaled by these moments of just this anguish and this helplessness of being a parent and knowing that your kid's going to die and anger I mean. and anger and not being able to do, you know, not be, it's like you're there watching your kid die and you can't, your hands are bound and you can't do anything. So the feeling of just helplessness and, and agony were just beyond anything I think either of us had ever felt. But yeah, again, thank goodness to God and his grace. There were moments where, you could take a breath, but then there were other moments where even just moving felt impossible. Yeah. I think I remember just being so angry and just mad at God and saying, if, Hey, if you're going to put me through this, what seems like a hor you know, this awful thing, like you better have a reason for it. And like giving them an ultimatum, like God, you can give God an ultimatum. No, you thought you could. I was like, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I'm a good person, you know, relatively speaking. Um, why bad things happen. And there's not a good answer to that question, is there? Several weeks went by, and their plan was to carry Logan to full term and then have a planned C-section since that would be the gentlest way to deliver him and optimize his chances for survival, no matter how slim or how brief. 
But then at 27 weeks, Jamie's water broke a full three months before the due date. And that jump started a grueling two-day labor and delivery. I got the call. She's like, my water broke and she's panicked. And she just went to our, the specialist, which was fairly close to where she was working at the time. And I immediately just drove down there and met her. And they said, you need to go to University Hospital. And so that's, I mean, we didn't have anything. So we just drove down there and I, we were there at that point, made the decision to induce, um, you know, typically... Uh, a baby can make it after 20, 23 weeks we induced. And um, so then all the fears of <laughs> the two days of waiting. I just remember the night before Logan was born in, in, in this hazy, but just sitting there and listening to the, the heartbeat on the monitor. And they didn't keep the monitor on all the time because there's obviously a high risk of his heart stopping, you know, to stop beating. So uh, we have a nice recording of that mm -hmm. uh, that I found on my phone. And, you know, so... Obviously, you know, just that that sound is just very comforting. The delivery, I remember, was really hard. It was a lot harder than what I had anticipated. And I was, I mean, any woman going into labor is scary, especially when you've never done it before. You don't know what to expect, and it just is super overwhelming. And as overwhelmed as I was about the physical pain I was going to feel, I was so upset over what's Logan going to feel. Because at the time, we knew he was alive, and I knew sometime during this process, he's not going to be alive. And what was that going to look like and feel for him? And... So that was really, really overwhelming. And then especially when they started the induction process and we had fought so hard to keep him in. Yeah. It was really hard um, to be willingly. And at that point, we didn't have an option. Then it just felt like everything went wrong. Like all the procedures and the things that they typically do to induce that usually are easy and... Well, easy is not the right word. Not even close to that. Usually go a bit more smoothly. We had issues with all of those. And I just remember... There was a point where I was looking at Andy and my sister Kelly was there with us too and I could see I could see the frustration in their eyes. I could see them clenching their jaws. I could see them having, you know, they'd have to excuse themselves from the room. And I knew, you know, they were trying they were going out to the hall to release some emotion and um, but I knew they just didn't want me to see it, but it was kind of like we all were crumbling. And we still had a, a bit of labor for sure to go and at one point um they said, you know, you're probably two hours away from delivery. You guys might want to call your families because my family is like an hour away and Andy's family was probably a half hour away. And so we didn't want them sitting there. So we told them we'll call you guys when we get closer to delivery. And so we were two hours away from delivery. And then suddenly I told my sister and Andy, I was like, he's here. I have to push. I felt a big gush. And it was so then it was like doctors and nurses and they weren't quite prepared. So it was a very, very chaotic scene. And I remember when I was actually pushing, I was like, I need to get him out fast because I'm crushing him. I was so afraid of what was happening to his body. And from those things that that doctor said, she actually told us it could be potentially gruesome. Is he going to come out whole? So all these things are going through my mind. And then the second he came out, it was like this very chaotic scene instantly just went quiet. And I remember sitting up and in my brain, I was like, I just kept thinking potentially gruesome. Like, what am I going to see? What am I going to see? And when I sat up and he was, he was wiggling and he was beautiful. He was broken, but he was beautiful. And he looked like his daddy and he had a dimple in his chin and yeah. He was alive, which was not what we expected. He was alive. He was yeah. alive and he uh, moved, which scared me uh, to death. Cause I, like I said, I had this. I don't think we anticipated seeing him alive. And I don't think we had checked on his heart in quite a while. Cause it was, I mean, it was a, a very long labor and delivery 
And so when he came out and was alive, it was kind of a shock to all of us. And then, yes, I do remember him, him moving and Andy kind of startled him. It was really actually sweet. So it was, it was such a blessing to get to see him alive because I know he could have come out and we wouldn't have had those moments with him. Um, and they felt so fast. You know, it's like you're saying hello and goodbye in the very same breath is what it felt like. And uh, my sister got to hold him, which was really special. Yeah, she um, had been a huge support through the whole thing and had just been just a pillar for us, I feel like. And so we, we were freaked out. We had no idea what was going on. So I was like, Kelly, you have to come with us because we can't do this by ourselves. And we just felt like we were children. And so she had done so much for us. There was really one thing we could give back to her, and that was her being able to hold Logan while he was alive. And she was singing to him, which was really sweet. And then... Yeah, she had a song that she made up when we were carrying him and knew that he was potentially going to pass. Mm-hmm. That was super sweet. I think she, that's what she sang to him, didn't she? Yeah, it was Jesus Loves Me, but it was about he's going to help your body grow and long and strong. What was it? And pure as snow or something like that. So she made up this really sweet little song that she'd sing to him. So she got to hold him and, and sing to him and then... I held him for a minute and then we passed him back to Andy and then Andy, oh, I don't know if I'm able to get this out. Um, we knew that his heart was slowing. You could see that he was not moving as much and that his, you know, his time was ending. And then for your prayers to shift to God, like take him home, take him home. And so Andy held him up and he said, run to Jesus, Logan. And then he was gone. I said, it's okay to go. Yeah. Which is, I mean, as a parent, you know, like our our prayers had been, let us keep him, heal him, restore him. And then all of a sudden to realize like, no, my prayer needs to be take him. It was hard. There was the strangest sense of calm, like right after he was gone. And I think part of it was just like the fear and the questions and what is it gonna look like? And is he hurting? And is like all of a sudden, He's free, he's whole, he's not hurting, and he's with Jesus. And so I think there was definitely God's spirit in that room giving us just a moment to just like catch our breath before it kind of all sunk in, you know, the the anesthesia of what had just happened and we were just numb and, um, but it was, it was still a, a nice moment to have because it was just, it was calm. I don't even know how to explain it other than that. Like, I think that's like the peace of God that transcends um, all understanding. And it didn't last very long, but I remember when we looked at each other and we both felt, I think, that same way, which is so weird in some mm-hmm. regard. And I remember back to like the, the hospital and like the day that we were leaving them. And luckily, thank goodness Andy's parents did volunteer to come down um, because, you know, leaving him in that room. And knowing like we're walking out these doors, he should be with me. We should be putting him in a car seat. This should be like the most exciting day um, of our lives that we get to bring him home. And and so to be able to leave him and have that last picture be his grandparents holding him was so much easier than than leaving him with a stranger, even though it was it felt like my feet felt like lead trying to walk out of that room. Um, and then they wheeled us down a hallway. They put us out like a like a, a back door. It's like we got like a side exit door. Um, kind of like the, okay, let's just, let's just get them, get them out into their car. And I remember getting in the car and everything looked the same. The world looked the same. There was people 
eating lunch. I remember seeing people walking their dogs and just doing completely normal things. Like I wanted to scream. I'm like, how can you just be sitting here laughing and smiling and going on a walk with your dog? Like my baby just died. I'm just driving home and my son's body is at the hospital and he's not with us. And, um, but the world just carried on. And uh, yeah, and then Andy definitely should not have been driving. And that was one of those things. You never know when you're in that situation, but we were still just in such shock. And we did, we got stuck in an intersection on the way home. And neither of us could like, could our brains, we couldn't even think like, okay, just back up. Like we're, we're too far on the intersection. We just need to back up. And so people were driving past and yelling at us and, you know, flipping us off and, and doing all the things. And we're just sitting here and it's like, we needed like a sign that said like, you know, be kind, my baby just died. Um, but then we finally got home, thank goodness, safely. And that was super eerie because you walked into the house and it was like the exact same way we left it. Because the morning that I left for work, I didn't know that I wasn't going to be back for three or four more days. And so like our clothes were still crumpled on the floor and it just was, you know, but the last time I had walked through those doors, Logan was with me and then suddenly he wasn't. And so we spent the next, oh goodness, at least two or three days in bed. Um, Kelly, my sister, I remember because we weren't eating, we weren't really doing anything. And I remember she would come and feed us grapes. So she, I mean, she just is so, so wonderful and was so graceful in that whole situation that she literally would sit by our side and feed us grapes. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a blur. Their baby boy Logan was gone, and so was part of their hearts. But there was still a long road ahead of them, one that only the Lord could carry them through, which you'll hear about right after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. 
and there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back. Despite all of their desperate prayers and pleas to God, Andy and Jamie's son, Logan, had died. They were devastated. How could God do this to them? Didn't he care about them? Didn't he care about Logan? And how could they still trust him? But while they wrestled with all of those questions, they still had to navigate through the here and now. I think one of the first things to get us out of bed was to go to and do his service and his burial, which was, um, it was a really beautiful day when we buried him. I remember thinking that it was um, really beautiful out and I remember feeling really, really anxious as we were driving to the cemetery because it was just like these things. Like we know, like I have to put my son in the ground today and I have to watch as they put dirt on him and I have to watch my husband carry a casket. And I know Andy was was anxious about, you know, being the person to carry the casket. And I was nervous about if I should see him again because it had been about a week, I think, since we had lost him. And the plan was for Andy to go into the room and then to let me know if I should come in and look at him again and... Uh, the second I saw his little casket there, like we both just ran to his side and and fell apart for a bit. And um, but eventually our families came in, and then we we um, we buried him, and we put a piece of our hearts in the ground with him. And yeah, it was you know just so strange to be sitting there and looking at this hole in the ground that truly I was jealous of because it was holding Logan. Um, it got to do what we were never going to get to do again. And and just looking at, like, how is this our lives? How, like, how did we end up here? It just felt so surreal. And, like, this was, like, someone else's story or a really bad dream. And uh, But just knowing, like, soon, like, this is going to be a very familiar place for us and a familiar place for our family. And soon I'm not going to get lost trying to find his headstone. We're just going to know exactly how to get there. And, um, yeah, it was, so, it was just so, like, surreal sitting next to this hole in the ground that held our son, um, knowing that we weren't going to get to hold him ever again until the other side of heaven, obviously. So, Jamie had it worse, and I had it much better. I could hide in, a, in, in my cubicle at the time uh, and put my headphones on and listen to music. Jamie's doing hair and seeing a wide variety of people the question that everyone hates after they lose a baby is like, well, how many kids do you have? 
and and like in like you know just small talk scenarios and that's like a super loaded question because it's like man do i honor the fact that i know that i had a kid but mm. i re have no living children at home do i make this super uncomfortable awkward and then i'm dishonoring him and it's you know the mind game really ensues with that so some most of the time i say i don't have any kids you know and and then i'd feel bad that i didn't acknowledge him and they that's a whole different psychology right yeah, to, to go yeah, down like but it's yeah. a super loaded question that i think a lot of our people that we've worked with that will ask too, like, how do you answer it? And, I was, and now I'm at the point where I feel very comfortable answering that situationally, you know what I mean? And I don't feel that I'm ever doing Logan a disservice or dishonoring him because he's already good. Like nothing I do down here really much matters for him, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, cause he's, he's whole and perfect and no broken bones. And, um, it makes heaven really sweet. Yeah. Think, having that picture yeah, mm -hmm. in my head. Yeah. But yeah, I, the first time I did say I did have a kid was in Starbucks. I do remember this person. It was, it was, bad. It was, so it was bad. bad. I was like, well, boy, I opened up a can of worms here. This woman behind him. I don't think I know why she asked me if we had children because I don't know we were why trying she to would get ask coffee. That. I'm like, we're in lunch. Just want coffee. Like we're just, we're just getting Starbucks. But she, she asked you if we had any kids. And I remember, cause Andy was behind me. I remember hearing him say yes. And I was like, oh my, he's saying something. And so I kind of had like my ear his way, but then she just kept like, typically I feel like if you say I had a child and he passed away, usually it's like, I'm so sorry. Like it kind of like stalls the conversation quick because there's like just terror on their face. And, and she, she just kept pressing. Yeah. She's like, so well, what did he, he died. I was like, well, he osteogenesis imperfecta or brittle bone disease. And he passed away from that. Well, but how, and then she just kept pressing me. How did he die? And then I think at that point I my anger took over and I was like, well, he suffocated to death and like, like stop breathing. I mean, I don't. What do you want me to say? His heart stopped. And then I was like, okay, it we is need time to end this to conversation. Go. Time to get our coffee and <laughs> yeah. roll out of here now. So it's hard because you have this inner battle as to how should I handle this, and then you also have to deal with like this roulette where like how is the person going to receive this? Um, and it's it's a super hard space to walk, like a hard line to walk, because. You just never know what you're going to get. Um, and yeah, sometimes it sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it goes really bad. Typically, you end up having to console the other person or they just you can tell they're incredibly uncomfortable and they change the topic as quick as possible. And then every once in a while, you do have those people who just have no filter and, and ask really inappropriate questions. Um, and that's unfortunately what happened to Andy on the day that he first decided to share his little boy with a stranger. Knowing how to respond to someone who has lost a child can be difficult, and thankfully most of us haven't experienced that pain, which makes it that much more important, though, to know the right way to reach out in those situations. In fact, the writer in Ecclesiastes 3 says it well when he writes that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And as the stewards will tell you, knowing that there are different times like those is crucial. I feel like the most helpful things that people said, and it's so much more simple than we make it. I think we always try to really overcomplicate and we feel like these really fancy words can fill the space and fill our hearts in the void, which it can't. It's just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And pretty much nothing after that. Apologize, affirm the loss. Like I'm here for you. I love you. And I, that's pretty much it. Um, but people always try, you know, like this will make you stronger. You can always have another one. Um, 
and also being a believer, right? There's these these verses that we use that are like blanket statements for for tragedy and, you know, all things happen for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. That's great. I believe that. But like right when my baby dies, I don't want like I don't care that there's going to be something beautiful that grows from this. My kid just died. And so I think there were sometimes people very well-meaning in the Christian world would try to use certain verses in an effort to give us comfort, but it would kind of do the opposite. And yes, we truly believe those things, but there's a time and a place for those. And when you're in like the, like the pits of grief, that is not the time for people to be telling you like, Oh, well this, this will do something good for someone, you know? And it's like, well, I'm glad my, my child dying is going to help someone somewhere. Like right now, that's not helpful to me. Um, or, you know, my sister had actually said at one point that it's in those situations, it's so much better to pray or to speak scripture over people. So instead of saying, you know, God will use this for good, pray with that person and say, God, like, please let this person see something good come of this. This is horrible. And this is a loss that they're going to feel forever and a void that's going to be, you know, in their lives forever, but help fill that void, help show them the purpose of this. Cause that yeah. feels very different than, well, it's okay. God's going to use this for good. Yeah, I think the people that we felt the safest around were the ones that would let us feel whatever it was that we needed to feel, whether that was crying or being angry for the moment or making inappropriate comments at things and would just like roll with it and not, you know, not say, well, you shouldn't be mad. You shouldn't be doing this. You should be appreciated. Like the people that would just walk with us and let us feel what we need to felt were the ones um, were the ones that we, I think, appreciated the most. And it's honestly what we needed. We just needed people to be willing to sit in the brokenness and the ugliness of grief with us. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where that is not, that's not the norm. Um, we, our culture does not do well when it comes to death and dying, the process of lamenting. Um, and it's like a very, very taboo thing. So that when you add to that the death of a child, you can see where people just went completely bonkers and had no idea what to do with us. And we felt we were really, really loved. We were super supported by our friends and our family and our church, but we felt completely misunderstood. And there's a huge difference. We tell this to our, our families a lot. There's a really big difference between being loved and understood. And we weren't understood. Grieving took a long time for both of them. And to be honest, they felt spiritually bankrupt. And it was a struggle to trust God. It was a struggle to want to engage with God. But the amazing part about God is that even though they may not have been there for God, God was still there for them. We are fighting so hard and praying and reading Logan the Bible and just like fighting for a miracle. Um, and then that miracle didn't happen, right? <laughs> and he, he passed and then it's like, I had no more energy left to fight and pursue God. Like, I think that's, I think how we probably mm -hmm. both felt. It's like, yeah. man, the energy to fight when he was here and read him the Bible and pray and, and be close to God um, in that aspect while he was here. But then afterwards I was like, I don't have the energy. I don't have the the desire to, to do that because I'm hurt, right? And I think that's that was where I was sitting. Um, and then and it, it's, one thing that's super hard is like I lost my wife a piece of her died you know I think life events change who you are and define aspects of it but it's like there's this whole grieving process like we were these you know it's like a dividing line in your our relationship is like we must have been some way before but like I don't remember anything else and it wasn't the same right so that's why yeah. it's so hard I think on marriages um after losing again and then it's like we're on different paths of grieving and you know I still remember we went to church um, but that was really hard, I think, for us too. I mean, I think there was 
the element where you could feel um, the spirit and that was one thing. But to me, um, I just, I had zero energy and to pursue. And I think that's a, um, like looking at back now, there was all these small things and, and people that came along the way that is where I think God shows up the most. And, and even though I wasn't, I didn't have any energy to pursue him, there was just these nuggets. I never was big in listening to Christian radio in any sort of sense, but after Logan passed and some of the songs that were on repeat, I, I, I listened to Caleb and would put that on on the way to work. And I didn't cry at home, but on the way to work, I cried a lot. And, um, you know, I think even though I didn't have energy to pursue God, God is still gonna pursue me. And there was just, I just remember crying on the way to work one day and I was having such a hard time knowing at work that just everything that was going on in my life. And there was a song that came on and I've never heard it on the radio since. Um, it was like uh, 10th Avenue North Times and it's, it, and I, I've eventually found the song on a YouTube um, and it was this Valentine's version and it was this really cool song but it was also these bible verses and it was literally at the a time where i felt like i was at my lowest and it felt like god was literally just talking to me like through the radio which you know everyone's there's never like these epiphanies i don't think god just like shows up in a booming voice but like that was like the one time where i was like i felt seen in my grief that even though i have zero energy to care about god that he still cares about me there was definitely a big shift between like us fighting for him and like, I don't think I'd ever been in the word that much or had prayed that much before when, when Logan was sick. And then it was like this, just like stall right afterwards. And it truly was energy. It's like, we didn't, I couldn't even have the energy to brush my teeth. So the idea to pursue this relationship and I wasn't, for the most part, I can't say that we were like fully mad at him. I definitely had moments where I was mad at him. And I think a lot of it too was not even necessarily like Logan died, but like, where are you? Your word, right? People would be like, God's close to the brokenhearted. I'm like okay but what does that tangibly look like because I'm I'm at the grave crying begging him to show up and not feeling a thing so those were the I think those were the times where I was more mad that like, I should be feeling you right now and I'm not feeling you why am I not feeling you like why do other people who have had loss have these like Andy said these like revelations or this big booming voice or something why is yours so quiet and so I think I really struggled with that. Um, thank goodness for both of us that we had a, a strong foundation growing up in a Christian home and just knowing, you know, that he is who he says he is regardless of the things that we go through in this life. And so I think it was good to always have that. And I don't think we ever like moved away from our faith. I don't think there was ever a time where I even for a second thought about leaving my faith. Um, God is hope. Right. And he is the only chance for us to see our son again. And even if he never did anything for us again, I knew he had given me his son, which suddenly had so much more meaning to it. Right. For him to willingly give his son, because he had asked that of me, I would have said, no, find another person like not my boy. But he did the complete opposite. And so I think I had that to counterbalance when I had those moments of frustration and those moments of you know, crying to him and just, where are you? Why, like, this is breaking me. I am not, like, I'm changing into someone I don't like. I feel like bitterness and anger and all these things growing in me that were super foreign because I had never felt them before. So I think my struggle with him was more in that capacity. Um, I definitely had my moments where, you know, just seeing other families get their miracles and all these, these other situations play out in front of us, wondering why, like, why did their baby make it? and mine didn't, or why did, you know, why did you give them 
the blessing and, and not us? Why did you give this mom six kids and not save my only one? Um, so I did struggle with that. But at the end of the day, it was he's good and he loves us and he gave us Jesus. Right. And um, so I think that kind of grounded me throughout it, even though we did. I definitely had times where I'd go from, you know, just begging him to fix my heart and then kind of yelling at him because why did you let it break in the first place? As Jamie and Andy's story wrapped up, I asked them one last question. What would they say to a parent who has lost his son or daughter and who is actively asking God, why did you take my child? That's a really good question. And it's actually one that I used to personally ask God all the time. Um, And I asked him that for years upon years. And then one day, because he is so good to me, he actually finally gave me an answer. And it's hard for me to say, God said this, right? Because I feel like there's moments where I know it was his voice. And I feel like this is one of those moments where I I truly do believe it was his voice. And it was, um, he basically said, Jamie, I didn't, I didn't take Logan away from you. I gave him to you for eternity. So we are always so wrapped up in the here and now and in this life that we have um, that we forget that like we have eternity, that this is a drop in the bucket. And he was like, if I didn't give you Logan right now, even though I know you had to lose him, you would not have him for all of eternity. And even though right now it's so hard and so painful that he's not here with you, the time that you're going to get to be with him is a millionfold what you're experiencing right now without him. So it was just such a, I mean, such a simple shift in perspective, but eye opening for me. And it really changed his heart. Right. And it was like, well, he didn't take Logan. Like he gave me a son and we live in a fallen world and that's what took Logan. And as tragic and as sad as that is, that world is only able to take him for so long because God is going to give him back to me when I, you know, walk through the gates of heaven. And it helped me in my relationship with him immensely But that, I mean, and that was probably five years after he had passed when he finally, you know, I think it was more so when I finally started listening and stopped complaining Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) that, that he, he told me that. Um, But it's been something I've held on to for a long time has really just helped me in those moments where I just am missing Logan and wondering what he would be doing. And, you know, guys, thank you so much for just sharing from the bottom of your heart. Thanks guys for your time. Well, thank you. Thank Thank you you so much for so nice to meet you. And thank you for letting us share our story with you. In Psalm 139, 13, David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And that is no less true of Logan than it is of any of us. God is the author, giver, and creator of life. And every life is precious in his sight, no matter how brief or small. I'm so grateful that Andy and Jamie placed their son in God's hands and were willing to trust him, even though it would be hard. But I'm even more grateful that Jesus has provided a way for us to be reconciled with a holy God and one day be united with him in eternity and with all of those who are his, including Logan. It's been 10 years now since Logan passed away and a lot has happened. Jamie and Andy have two more children, a son and a daughter, and they launched a nonprofit called Walk With Me, which is focused on providing practical, financial, and emotional support to families dealing with infant loss and to direct them to the true source of hope. They're doing incredible work, and we'll provide a link to their website and our show notes at compelledpodcast.com. Also, in the show notes, we'll include a couple of the songs that Andy and Jamie mentioned and a few other resources. And one other cool thing. 
Jamie has written a book about their experience called Walk With Me, A Journey of Infant Loss, Grief, and Hope. And believe it or not, it's actually being released tomorrow. And no, we did not coordinate that. In fact, I was a little shocked last week when I found out the release date. But that's what I would call divine timing. And who knows, maybe that's a sign from God that you should go and buy a copy. Again, we'll include a link in our show notes at compelledpodcast.com to their book. If you enjoy listening to Compelled, then please take a minute and share it with a friend. One of the biggest reasons someone decides to listen to a new podcast is if they receive a personal recommendation from a friend. And we would love for as many people as possible to be encouraged by these stories of what God is doing. Finally, if you're looking for a podcast app on your cell phone, then we recommend our sponsor, CastBox. Their app is easy to use and lets you download episodes ahead of time to listen to when you're offline. And it's free. Learn more at castbox.fm. This episode was edited by Will Jackson. Our sound engineer is Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's story with Josh Howard, an unlikely missionary to India who has seen God work in incredible ways and multiply disciples like never before. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. And it was during the most difficult, stormy, broken seasons of my life, man, that I began to see that God was with me through those moments. He was the father I longed to have growing up. He was the one that never left, that loved me even in the midst of my brokenness, knew the secret life I was living and still came and loved me and helped me through them. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.